episode 15 of Behold Her, a podcast that showcases the diverse stories of femme gamers and tabletop RPGs. I'm your host, Lisa Penrose, and this episode is all about femmes who kickstart, who crowdfund, who bring amazing creations to life by harnessing community. We chat with Banana Chan of Game in a Curry, who has an amazing Kickstarter live right now as this episode launches. Then we hear from multi-Kickstarter experts Annie Norman of Bad Squiddo Games and Sasha Augustine of Sun Shadow Arts about their tips and tricks. Finally, we end this episode with an audio story sponsored by Total Party Chill and written and recorded by writer and game designer Shauna Germain. Every week, Total Party Chill brings you some D&D actual play, indie game highlights, and even a D&D trivia game show. They're your future, third favorite, D&D channel. Find them at twitch.tv slash totalpartychill or at T-T-L-P-R-T-Y-C-H-L-L, that's Total Party Chill without the vowels, on Twitter. All right, it's story time. Banana Chan is a game designer extraordinaire with credits including Scooby-Doo's Betrayal at Mystery Mansion, a module for kids on bikes, and coming up, being funded by a Kickstarter right now, Jiang She, Blood in the Banquet Hall. Banana, thank you so much for joining me for Behold Her. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. Oh, yay. <laughs> so to start us off, how about uh, you tell us your tabletop origin story? How did you get into tabletop games? So when I first started playing games, I guess tabletop games specifically, I was in college. Uh, I played D&D once and that was it. That was like, okay, this was an experience but I'm more interested in drinking beer and hanging out with, you know, my friends. Uh, So that was my first experience playing tabletop games. And then later on after college, a while later, I started, you know, playing board games and that was like, okay, this is really interesting. This is a lot of fun. And I got really into it. Like I do with a lot of things because when I get into something, I just like go all in. Um, And so I started writing a blog. Then we started writing game in a curry uh, which is which started off as a blog, and then somehow it evolved into like a publishing company. But during that time, during the time that you know I started writing about board games, I also got into role playing games, and I got introduced into the community by Ajit George, who uh, is the director of operations for Shanti Bhavan, which is a charity organization. And once I learned about all these new indie tabletop games, was when I realized, oh. You know, tabletop role-playing games aren't just D&D and Pathfinder and Shadowrun. There are all these other things like Monster Hearts by Avery Alder. So once I started playing Avery Alder's Monster Hearts, I was just like enamored. I wanted more. I was like hungry for more games like that that took place in settings that I was interested in. Because generally high fantasy is cool and fun, but, you know, it's not really my thing. So when I started, yeah, I was about to ask, like, what was it about D&D where you were like, meh, I did it uh, <laughs> versus these indie games where you were like, I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was all about the settings. So like when I started, you know, when we were playing d d it was just like, okay, we're in a high fa- fantasy setting. You know, I've read a bit of Lord of the Rings. It was just never my thing. Like I, I never got really excited about it. But a high school setting with monsters that's kind of like Buffy. Yes, absolutely. I am so down for that. (laughs) Did you find that it was just that 
indie games explore so many different settings so you could find ones for you? Or do you generally like just that indie games have a very specific niche? I think that there is more room for exploration. And when I started playing indie games, I found that, you know, there were different people making different things and I could, you know, sort of pick and choose what I was most interested in. So I come from a video art background. I do like video stuff. And for my day job, I also do video production. And I, you know, have a lot of, a lot of interest in like movies and television. And so that's sort of how I relate to like tabletop role-playing games where it's sort of like if there is something that's that's of interest or something that's like a movie or a television show then there has to be like a role-playing game for it and maybe you know I can act out those characters in that tv show or movie and so I think that like you know based on what I prefer watching I can probably find something that's based around that oh that's such an interesting I'd never thought about it in that way, how you approach your interest in tabletop. So how did that interest go from this being a newly discovered hobby that you loved to something that you do, a job? I think when we first started publishing, uh, we were publishing, you know, small box board games. That was a thing. But on the side, it was also writing and creating. I've never actually, you know, been very inactive in terms of like creation like I always have to be hands-on and like I want to be doing this I want to like you know not just GM but like make a story and like you know go all out and write it down and like show it off to the world or take criticism because coming from art school that's sort of like that's sort of like a a thing that you do right like you create a lot and you have to be hands-on so For me, I think after playing so many games, I was just like, I want to get my hands into this. Like, I want to try doing this. So uh, the first couple of games I actually wrote were for the Golden Cobra Challenge. They were LARPs. Uh, They were very experimental LARPs. And the Golden Cobra Challenge encourages that, like, you know, encourages that different ways of using, you know, props or they call them ingredients. And so I wrote their On To Me, which was the second game that I wrote for them. The first game was The Other Place. And so their onto me is a vlogging solo LARP where you're just like vlogging yourself for a minute at a time for seven days straight. And you're just like basically talking about this parasitic alien invasion that's happening. And uh, you're just doing this for a while and you're pretending you have to answer these props, uh, prompts on, on the game itself. And from there, like, you know, it was just like more experimental stuff, more like, you know, playing around with the tools that I have with other collaborators. So those were your first few things that you worked on. Um, And it sounds like you very much were learning by doing. Is there anything that you know now, having game designed a number of things that you wish you could have told yourself at the beginning? I think definitely just go at it. If you have an idea, just do it. (laughs) Because I think sometimes I get held back because I'm not sure if it's like, the right fit for this community or if it's not you know if it's not quite right for this community you know if if I think that people aren't going to be ready for something that I'm making then I hold myself back a lot and that's just like a lot of like self-doubt but honestly I think if there's an idea throw it out there test it with people see what they think and you know play it out and also definitely work with other people like I think this industry is really focused on working in silos sometimes. And 
I think that it's always good to introduce new voices. It's okay to work like solo sometimes. It's okay to like, you know, get things done. Sometimes it's a faster way of working. But I think when it comes to like introducing new ideas, talking to other people is really important. Yeah. I mean, as part of my day job at Dungeon Masters Guild, I get to see all of the different collaborations that people do. And you see that everyone has their own game design style or types of topics that they like focus on or aspects of the game they really prefer focusing on. And those collaborations are always bigger and better than one person having had their hands on that project. Yeah, definitely like with one person making a product like that, you can put on itch. And it's always exciting to like see something like that as well. Like because it's it's interesting to see how like a person's thought processes when they're writing a game that's deeply personal, that's, you know, something that's put out onto itch. But it's a very different process from like writing a, a really big tabletop RPG product or like, um, you know, a larger product like a board game. Are there any stories or anecdotes that pop out in your mind when you think about you were working on something and then collaborating with someone on that idea made it so much better? I would definitely say the current project with Sen, uh, Sen Fum Lim and I are working on John Shui Blow in the Banquet Hall. And it's just like, so great just working with him because we're going back and forth on this word document. Um, you know, this is maybe like the fifth or sixth iteration of this document now. And like, you know, bringing on other writers so that we get their voices in as well. And then working together with them, it makes the world richer. It makes the game richer as well. And it makes it so much more interesting and it fills it with depth because it is a game that does, that does deal with heavier topics it does require like a lot of different voices in order for it to to make sense to click. So there's that. And I think also just like having the ability to like talk to Sen and go back and forth and brainstorming stuff. Like sometimes in the middle of the night, I would receive like all these text messages with like, hey, did you read this article? Did you see like all these podcasts? And then I would be like, okay, Sen, I'll like respond to you in the morning when I'm awake. <laughs> uh, and then I would like wake up and I would just like see all these amazing resource material things. And it's just like, wow, like this is stuff that I would never think about before. And integrating that into the game definitely made it just so much bigger. I also just feel like hearing you describe the messages that you get from him he has this like level of enthusiasm, which is so refreshing when you're collaborating with someone to be able to talk to someone who's as into a project as you are. Oh yeah, definitely. Like we're both like, when, even when we first started, it was just like, yes, we're going to do this thing. And we're just going to like, we threw out so many different ideas at one another. And I think we have like a whole brainstorming document where it's just like dedicated to like, all the things that we've discovered and we found that we're going to mix and match and see what fits. So let's moonwalk it back a little bit. Zhang Shu is the a game that you are currently kickstarting right, right now, at least as this podcast launches. For those who haven't seen the Kickstarter page, haven't seen the massive support on Twitter for this game, what is this game? Zhang Shu Blow in the Banquet Hall is a collaborative storytelling tabletop RPG, which is about a, uh, a Chinese immigrant family that is running a restaurant in the 1920s in one of the Chinatowns in the US or Canada. 
And in the daytime, they're faced with stress from running a restaurant and like having to deal with the oppression of the time. And at night, they have to deal with even more stress because Jiangshu hopping vampires are out and trying to attack everyone. So they have to defend themselves and the restaurant and make sure that they get some get some sleep in between. Oh my goodness. Every single aspect. It's, oh, it's like when this game is described and it starts out like 1920s and I'm like, okay, I'm interested. And then it's in a Chinatown running a restaurant. And I'm like, I'm very interested. And then you layer in vampires and I'm like, this game was made just for me. <laughs> so I don't even know where to start. I mean, I guess let's start with how you started. How did the idea come about for this game? Oh, gosh. So uh, the idea for this initially was that Sen and I wanted to make a game. Well, for me personally, I wanted to make a game that had something to do with my identity. Like, I just want to use, you know, my identity and I want to be like personal with a project. And so I met Sen and we talked a bit and he was also interested in doing something that had something to do with his own identity and the cultures that he's immersed in. And we just wanted to talk a bit about like what makes the immigrant experience so unique and we wanted to share it with people and we wanted to bring it into into a tabletop role-playing game format because we think that you know sometimes it's a pretty good way of educating people on like the history of immigration and also just like the history of chinese american identities and so we talked a bit back and forth and I had played a game that used uh, a Chinese restaurant as a theme but unfortunately it was made by white people and I did not have a good time (laughs) and so um, I uh, in my secret spitefulness I decided hey why don't we do this but do it you know, in the way that we would like to be seen. And so uh, that's sort of like the launching point for that. We talked a little bit about that and we were just like, okay, so how do we, you know, make the fears and the oppression and like, how do we sort of like make them physical? How do we make them sort of like, like scary or even more stressful? So we decided, hey, what about Jiangshu? They're like a physical manifestation of like the fears, the stresses, like all of this other stuff. Why don't we have them appear during the night so that that way it's even more loaded with like horror and like terror for the family so that, you know, players sort of also can separate themselves from like the hardships of running a restaurant and and the oppression of the time. So that way you have that sort of separation to, to play off of. So that's sort of how it started. <laughs> I was really excited to see the game in particular because there are other role-playing games and board games that incorporate, say, Chinese culture. And as you kind of alluded to, sometimes for the better or sometimes for uh, the worse (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, because they're made from folks not actually from that culture. But I don't feel like I've seen a lot of games that talk about what the Chinese American experience and culture is, which is very different from uh, culture from the mainland. So that in particular was really exciting for me. I'm wondering, are there any elements of like your experience with diaspora that come up in the game as uh, that you could give us as examples? So speaking from my personal experience, when I was growing up, so I grew up in Hong Kong, but then I moved to Canada for high school, for uh, for boarding school specifically. And that was like a huge culture shock for me. And 
there was a lot of pressure and a lot of anxiety for me to sort of fit in. So for a long period of my life, I was trying to reject sort of like my Asian-ness, quote unquote, if you will. And I didn't want to talk about my identity. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I think up until recently when, you know, after a bit of therapy and like, you know, talking to other people that are like me, talking to other people who are, you know, also come from immigrant families or, you know, other people of color, it's sort of just like blossomed out. Like, I wouldn't say it was recently, it was more like five or six years ago, or like, I don't know, eight years ago. But until that point, like, I didn't think about my culture or my identity in such a way that I could feel comfortable, like even expressing it, right? Because I suppressed it so much. And I just like, wanted to reject it because I was so scared of who I was. And I think that kind of shows in the game because there is a character in there who is a, a child and the child, and I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people probably feel this way as well, but the child just wants to fit in. And the child, you know, has these hopes and dreams that the child character has these hopes and dreams that sort of counter the, the hopes and dreams that the rest of the family has for them. Because the family has sacrificed so much for this child to have a better life than them, uh, that they're they have a lot of pressure to do well. But at the same time, the child, because they're raised in an environment that isn't necessarily the friendliest towards Asian Americans uh, or Chinese people specifically, they might feel like they should be rejecting themselves as well. So we have um, a facet and a skill. We have one for like being assimilated and another one for passing so that that way players can sort of step into the shoes of what it's like to to have these experiences of feeling like you don't fit in but you try so hard to fit in i so while we're recording this for folks who listen i I do these interviews like audio only no video and i'm kind of glad right now because i had this weird emotional reaction to describing this child i'm like tearing up a little bit i'm just like wow this is resonating so deeply because i'm very much the same gosh for me it's just even like the past couple years where i'm taking a little bit more ownership of uh, my chinese ancestry And before that, especially growing up as a kid, never really wanted to talk about it, always kind of stayed away from like the Asian cliques uh, in school and almost kind of felt this weird pride in that, which I, which feels strange looking back at it. I'm curious because you sound very, like you mentioned that you kind of blossomed into embracing your identity and you sound confident in speaking about it now, at least from my perspective. But I know that last year I wrote in a D&D encounter that was inspired by a Chinese myth, Lady White Snake. Oh. And I felt all sorts of like confusion and like I, confusion with my identity and self-doubt whether I was allowed to really write about this myth. And it just had a lot of weird feelings for me exploring my identity through writing and working. I'm curious whether that's come up at all for you working on Jiangshu. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I think especially right now, because, you know, a a lot of people want this to be the perfect product. And I can understand where that's coming from. It's coming from a place of misrepresentation and not having that not having that tabletop RPG portray them perfectly in the past or, you know, even well in the past before. And so 
having seen like a few comments, it does sort of bring back a bit of like this own like self-doubt and like questioning of my own identity where I'm just like, am I Asian enough or am I even Asian? Like I've had these like questions. Oh my God. Yes. And I'm just like, wait a second. No, let's step back. No, like look at yourself in the mirror. You're obviously Asian. You obviously, <laughs> um, you know, have these experiences and you were born Asian. Like, yes, you have like this. This is okay for you to write about because, you know, we're so conditioned to to sort of just like not talk about ourselves. Right. Or to like even feel like shame sometimes for being like who we are and I think that it's a tricky balance it's like very tricky to just sort of be like hey I want to make a thing and I want to represent myself but I also want to represent like you know us as a community but then other people always forget that we're not a monolith right we're we're just like you know creating this thing based on our experiences based on our research based on like you know whatever else we found but again this is not a monolithic experience if you want to bring yourself into the table as well, by all means, definitely like create your own thing. But at the same time, like this experience is unique to us because we're the ones that are, that are going through this. And an identity crisis is definitely something that I've experienced multiple times while writing this. And also like, you know, right now <laughs> as it's like <laughs> launched and like, you know, on Kickstarter, so even though I sound, I probably sound confident, I don't know if I do, but like, I still do have like, seeds of self doubt that that pop up very so often. I feel like that's really core to the diaspora experience. Like you just feeling like, am I Asian <laughs> enough? Mm-hmm. That's something I felt a lot as well. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. It's making me feel really flustered right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. This is like a deep topic. <laughs> I know. Um, So you've mentioned, I saw a little bit on Twitter, you talk about how this game very consciously excludes a set of combat rules, uh, which might be surprising for some folks because there are vampires involved. So folks would think, uh, well, you've got to know how to, I don't know, karate chop a vampire, (laughs) someone might think. Uh, Can you uh, tell me a little bit about that choice? Yeah, so we wanted to write in regular people, right? Because you're just a regular person trying to run a business and you know regular restaurant owners might not know martial arts or how to karate chop anything really and so we wanted to build in this idea that you know not all chinese people know how to do kung fu or like no martial arts there is an option to have that skill built into your character but again you know we want to emphasize that this is just a hobby like the restaurant is basically like you know everything for you because your family is working from the earliest hours of the morning until like the latest hours at night just like you know doing this day by day by day and you're not going to have time to learn you know martial arts or you're not going to have time to practice calligraphy or something like that these things are just things on the side things that you're you're interested in but a regular person will not know how to like dive deep into to martial arts and like automatically slay a vampire or slay a juncture mm-hmm. so how can you give an example of it's nighttime a juncture shows up uh, what are some different ways folks might approach that Let's pretend that a Jiangsu comes out 
and they have somehow made it into your kitchen. And, uh, you know, you have uh, a tool, maybe you have a wok, maybe you have a spatula, but you have to defend yourself um, against this, this junction with a wok or a spatula or whatever else you have lying around. Please slap a vampire with a spatula. <laughs> you can do that. So the GM will just ask you to roll five D8s or whatever amount of D8s uh, that you're using during that day, because as the days go by, you have more and more stress. You take away one D8 per day. Yeah, so it gets harder and you're rolling from this pool of dice. And when you roll, anytime you roll a four, the four cancels out the highest number because four is bad luck. Um, and so- Oh, good touch, yeah. Yeah, so whatever you have left is your outcome and it should be the highest number. The highest number will be your outcome. So say you rolled, you know, a bunch of fours, then you really, really fail at this. Talk about how you failed at this and if it's been really bad, then you'll take damage. And damage looks like cards. So these cards would cover up a slot on your character sheet. And the character sheet has like all these different things, like your skills, your facets, your items, whatever. And when that's covered, you can't use it. So say one of your skills was um, negotiation. That gets covered up. You are no longer able to negotiate because you are so dazed and confused or you're so, um, you're so tired or something like that. Um, these cards will have like little tidbits of role-playing information on them for you to know how to act out. And so say that happens, you know, that that doesn't go so well. But if you rolled maybe like a five or a six, then you have a success. You succeed in doing the thing, but what's the weird thing that happens? Like maybe the Jiangshu, like, you know, stop attacking you, but now they're like going after your customers. So that's like the weird thing that could happen. On a seven or eight, it's like a major success. So you fend off this Jiangshu and the Jiangshu's like run off into the night and you don't see them anymore. So it's very much like, I like to compare it to like Shaun of the Dead or like any sort of zombie or vampire movie where it's like regular people confronting weird paranormal things. Yeah, I like that that opens it up to role playing weird scenarios. And those could go very badly, which I feel like if it were happening in real life and you were facing a junk show and a, with a spatula, probably you're super doomed. But you could roll a success and then you get to do some shared storytelling, telling this epic tale of how you defeated a junk show with um, a cooking utensil. Exactly. Yeah, we've had players use like silver platters. We've had players use like random like knives and things like that. But the oldest family member usually knows how to defend themselves against the Jiangshu. So we would give them a card. Uh, it just basically says how to defend yourself against Jiangshu 101. And it lists off like all the things like you can you can use a rooster or you can like, you know, use a bottle of vinegar or something like that. Awesome. So how has reception been to the game? And is it what you expected? Honestly, I didn't expect us to fund in the first day. And it's been overwhelmingly positive. Like I have just been so I, I mean, like I'm really flattered with like the response. Everyone has been super into this. What there are some, you know, nitpicky comments here and there, but other than that, like everyone has been so great and so positive. I'm really excited watching you all smash those stretch goals because uh, you you mentioned how collaborating really adds so much to the game, this game in particular. And so seeing more and more people get to work on the game with you is really exciting. 
Yeah, I'm so excited. So yeah, we have Morgan, we have Kiana. Kiana's actually working on something inside the book right now. And they're working on a, a Chinatown, writing out one of the Chinatowns. So we have five different Chinatowns that are, that are pre-written out with history and everything uh, so that the reader, the GM, you know, whoever can get a sense of like what each Chinatown is like. And we also have Jabari, who's doing some of the artwork. So Jabari Weathers did some of the artwork for some of the Mung cards, uh, which are the dream slash nightmare cards. But now we're asking them back to write a scenario for us, which we're really excited for. And, oh, nice. I think, and I think the next one is Mabel Harper. So Mabel Harper is our next scenario writer uh, if we hit 55,000. So we're excited. Oh, yes. I have faith. I think you're, I think you're going to smash through that last goal. Thank you. Um, I even love just, I even just love hearing that Kiana's working on talking about different Chinatowns because even the China, like the Chinatown, the Chinese immigrant experience isn't a monolith either. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we have five separate Chinatowns that we've written out. We have had uh, guest writers write out. So we had uh, Ross Chung work on San Francisco and Los Angeles. Kiana worked on New York and Daniel Kwan worked on Vancouver and Toronto. So through your whole experience working on and launching Zhangshu Blood in the Banquet Hall uh, as a Kickstarter and all the other work you've done in the industry, what has it meant to you to be a femme person in the hobby and industry? It's definitely been a strange ride. (laughs) I don't even know where to start. I think initially it was a lot of panels about being a you know, a woman or a femme in games. And it's just like, okay, this is fun. At least I'm on a panel. You know, there was this like mentality of like, at least I'm here. Like, at least I'm doing a thing. But then I realized later on, it was just like, oh, I'm just a set piece here. (laughs) Um, You know, Mm -hmm. it, it was interesting to see that like that shift when people realize that I can actually write and make things. Because I started off also doing like video work for a lot of different companies, like Bully Pulpit Games. I did some videos for them and they were amazing to work with and they were just so much fun. And afterwards, I realized I wanted to get into writing. So I started writing more and I just like submit a whole bunch of stuff and a whole bunch of companies that I worked with were just like, yeah, let's you know, let's keep in touch. Let's like keep working together on different projects. Like Renegade, for example, after Kids on Bikes, I think I worked on Terror Below and then Warp's Edge and like a few other projects where it's just like, oh, like, you know, I'm now regularly working with you, I guess, uh, which is nice. I I guess that means that my work is okay. (laughs) And then, you know, from there, just like working with, with big companies like them, that gave me a platform to work with other companies. So like with Scooby-Doo, Betrayal at Mystery Mansion, that was actually through a friend, Brian Neff. And he was like, hey, you've done some really amazing stuff. Let's work together. And I was like, absolutely. Like, I would love to work on Betrayal and also Scooby. Like both of those things sound amazing (laughs) to me. I'm totally down. And so we started working on that together. And initially it was just like, I was just going to write some hots. And then that led into like a little bit of development work as well. So we were going back and forth on watching a whole lot of episodes of Scooby and doing the research for that. And just like, it was a lot of fun. It was very much 
in line with how a lot of tech companies do agile work because it was just like Mm -hmm. here's your first sprint here's your second sprint it was very fast and i like working in that fast pace that fast paced workspace do you feel like folks working with you or seeing the work that you've done looked at it through a different lens because you were because you are femme or do you feel like once you'd proven yourself through your work folks just took you seriously I would say it's a little bit of both, honestly. And I think that I was lucky enough to have so many people, especially after being introduced to like Ajit Circle of Friends, Ajit, Strix, uh, and, you know, everyone in that community, like after I had met them, because it was such a positive group of people that were just like building one another up, that was, that was sort of like my launch point for like doing all the work that I'm doing right now. And I think when I leave that circle, when I like go do other work for, you know, other people, there is sort of this, oh, you know, she's Asian and she's like, you know, a femme and she can like, you know, do all this stuff and it'll make us look good. Like that sort of comes back sometimes. And it is a weird feeling to have. Like, I'm going to be completely honest. Like, I think that some game designers have similar experiences where it's just like, are you hiring me for my work or are you hiring me for a diversity token? And I think that, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell, like, it's hard to tell how, if a company is going to do right by you. And I think the only way to sort of gauge whether or not you're doing something well or not is by talking to other people in the community or in the industry and trying to assuage those fears or, you know, trying to like at least dampen like the self-doubt that you have. And it is weird. It's like a weird spot. Like, I guess like, I'm not sure like what other people are experiencing, but for me specifically, it feels a lot like a push and pull type situation where it's like, oh, am I actually good at this? Am I having imposter syndrome right now? Most likely. But also at the same time, maybe I do deserve to be here. Maybe I do have a lot of work that's valuable. And maybe, you know, people want to read my stories and experiences. I totally empathize with that. I feel like, I mean, you mentioned you're constantly questioning is this like weird feeling in my gut? Is this imposter syndrome? Is this my subconscious trying to undercut? any good feelings I might have about this. And that's yet like another weight that uh, femmes, people of color kind of have to carry in this industry with them. I mean, I suppose you don't have to, but we, a lot of us do. Do you have any advice for other people trying to break into this industry who might be femmes, might be people of color who are struggling with these feelings? Honestly, if you're doing something and if you're making something, that's great. Just like continue doing the thing because it's really hard to create something. It's really hard to put yourself out there and it's really hard to just like do something that you might be criticized for or might be, you know, not what other people want. And I think that's okay. Like it's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be like a walk in the park. But at the same time, after you do this thing, you are, you know, a creator. You have done a thing and just keep looking back at the thing that you made and keep looking at, you know, your body of work and thinking to yourself, yeah, I've done some stuff. Like this is my, this is my portfolio. 
and I've probably done a lot of research. I've probably talked to a lot of people about this stuff and, you know, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an opportunity, in most cases, an opportunity is an opportunity and all you can do is be yourself and flourish while doing that. And that creates space for others as well. Yeah, exactly. As long as you're making stuff, then that pulls on, you know, a lot more other creators who are also looking for opportunities. You know, like you said, if you create that space for yourself, you're creating space for others. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up this interview, Banana, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? Good question. (laughs) So right now, everything is focused on Sejongshu. Oh, yes. So I do also have two games that I want to talk about briefly. And those are games I've published on the side through Game and a Curry. And those are Lair and Battle of the Boy Bands. So um, Battle of the Boy Bands is a card game. It's a take that drafting card game that's designed by Cleo Yansu Davis and Vicky Ho. And in the game, you are a music producer trying to build the best boy band while sabotaging everyone else's boy band. So that's, oh, uh, yes. that's a Kickstarter that we had launched recently. It's funded. Everything is going to the printers now to get made. And once we have them on hand, then we'll be able to like do, um, do selling through our website. So that's, game, that's one game that I wanted to talk about. And also Cleo Yansu Davis has done a lot of things. They did something for uh, Honey and Hot Wax, which is like a, I think it's up now on Peregrine Press's website, but it's an anthology of uh, erotic games. And it's it seems like it's a lot of fun. I just got it. I'm really excited for it. Uh, so definitely check that out. I think the editors for that were Sharon Biswas and Lucian Khan. And also uh, for Lair, Lair is a it's a worker placement tabletop board game. It's a small box board game, but it's it's really big. Like it's got full it's full of strategy basically. And that's by Tam Mayang, who's also an Asian designer. He's done a ton of stuff in the industry, and uh, I think he's been working on it for like five years until we published it. Wow! Wow! <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, players are super villains, and your super villains trying to build out your super secret underground volcanic lair. And you're trying to impress your boss by making the best player. <laughs> so uh, so that's the game. And it's available on our website at www.gameandacurry.com. I love that it's not just super secret, not just underground, but volcanic. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Only Tim would think of that. <laughs> <laughs> that is so fun. Um, so if folks want to see what you are up to, keep up on uh, updates about Jiangshu, Blood in, in the Banquet Hall, or any of these other games, how can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at BananaChanGames. I'm usually on Twitter, but I also have Facebook and Instagram as well. And if you want to follow my company, Game in a Curry, I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Game in a Curry. I had a blast chatting with you for Beholder. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. If you are enjoying this episode of Behold Her, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash beholdher. Your contributions help us pay our editor, sponsor audio essays, and so much more. Our next Patreon goal even bumps us back to coveted monthly episodes. Ooh. Special thanks to our latest Rose Buddies, Maria Nottage and Grady Wang. You help make Behold Her possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. 
Today on Behold Her Podcast, we are here with Annie Norman, also known as the Dice Bag Lady, also known as Bad Squiddo Games, home of believable female miniatures, the largest selection of awesome badass lady minis out there. Annie, thanks so much for joining me. Hooray! Thanks for having me on. Very excited. (laughs) So... Someone on Twitter recommended you as someone who has done a heckin' bunch of Kickstarters, the theme of this episode. But let's moonwalk it back a little bit and start with, how did you get in the tabletop role-playing hobby? Well, I think I was about 10 years old, and it just so happens. And my mum used to go to a lot of sort of flea markets. I don't know if you have them in America or what they're called, but they're sort of second-hand junkyards type things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she just picked up, because uh, they were super cheap and she thought they looked cool, she picked up a whole bunch of White Dwarfs, the Warhammer magazine, for me and my brother, saying, well, this is the sort of stuff you're into, you might just want to look through the magazines. Um, it kind of just all spiralled from there. So uh, it, they were quite old magazines, so uh, there was a lot of the old undead figures, and they just totally got me really excited. And from then on, so it's, I realized it has been the majority of my life now. <laughs> it's involved war games in some sort or another. What was it about these Warhammer magazines and this genre of game that really grabbed your imagination? Well, I guess I've kind of always been into the fantasy and sci-fi. And with gaming, it's always been more of the, the fantasy element. And I've got this, what's, I don't know what the word is, just general love for small things. <laughs> And I guess that's that's not unusual in this common, but uh, in this (laughs) hobby. But uh, yeah, just anything sort of small scale. And I I think that initially drew me in. And then it was later on that I got into the gaming side of it. Because originally it was just the painting little things and having small worlds, that sort of excitement. And then it escalated, as it always does. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you've mentioned this escalating, which kind of brings (laughs) me to my next question. How did you transition from learning of this hobby, diving head on into this hobby, to creating believable female miniatures? (laughs) Well... (laughs) When I, I got, I had a bit of a break, like a lot of people do. When I came back to the hobby, I was in university. So I made myself a dice bag. It People liked it. I just kind of made it because that's what I did. I did a lot of crochet. And before I knew it, I had a really successful dice bag company alongside being in the hobby as well. So that, that was quite, quite amazing, really. And it really, really took off. But it ended quite abruptly in sort of the end, end of 2014, because I got multiple wrist injuries, which I kept sort of trying to get through. It wasn't, I just couldn't fix them, basically. And as a bit of a last-ditch attempt, I thought, okay, I've been getting, I'd started playing historical war games, and I started noticing then that there was just this massive lack of female representation. I thought, okay, I've got a bit of a voice in the industry now. Maybe before I accept that it's all over, I'll I'll try it. I'll try and make some miniatures. I've no idea how I do this, but let's do it. If it doesn't work, then at least I'll have made some miniatures that I can play with. And that too escalated. <laughs> now yeah. I have hundreds of miniatures. So when you say I'll make some miniatures, were you like sculpting your own minis or were you working with a manufacturer to make a line? Was this Bad Squiddo Games or like a predecessor that would become Bad Squiddo Games? 
So at the start, it was still the Dice Bag Lady was the the Dice Bag Company, and it was kind of through developing the first couple of minis that I realised I had to really change the name because that was very boxed in, and it's why Bad Squiddo Games isn't the name isn't something like feminist games or female minis because I I didn't want to box in that knowing that eventually I'd end up finding other avenues. So we're working on a post-apocalyptic uh, guinea pig and bunny rabbit game at the moment. So again, I'm glad I don't have to change the name again. So Bad Squiddo is very, very set now. But at the time, there was a sculptor I knew local to me, Phil Hines. And between us, we sort of, I've got a lot of affection for him because we, we sort of figured it out at the same time. So he was very new to sculpting 28 mil figures. I was brand new to it, to, to working in that sort of realm Mm -hmm. and we kind of just figured it out as we went along so we started off with some shield maidens because that was specifically the miniatures that I wanted and then it just sort of through doing further and further research into women in history women that just aren't included in games or there aren't rules for and before you know it there's just this entire back catalogue I guess of of unrepresented women that I've just (laughs) trying as hard and fast as I can to really get these out and get them on people's tables and onto their hobby hobby desks and just keep platforming the people that have been forgotten so it's a mixture of diversifying what people are playing with but also educational at the same time so both of that just makes makes my heart very big (laughs) Oh my gosh, I just I have so many <laughs> follow-up questions because this just sounds so interesting. I mean, my my initial reaction is I know there are so many old-timer guys in the hobby who will say, "Well, you don't see like women pictured in these books or women characters or femme characters rather, just because they didn't they didn't really exist in history." But it sounds like you've done a lot of research uh, oh, yes. to prove <laughs> otherwise. I have to extra research because anything I bring out will have a bunch of people going, oh, you're just wish listing or, oh, no, that doesn't exist. And, uh, you know, shoehorning things in. All right. No. And immediately I can go because of this, this, this. Here's all my sources. Mm-hmm. And it, I've actually really enjoyed that because I love a, a project. So that, you know, learning myself is fun. So I have this massive, massive library of uh, of anything that's vaguely useful about about women from history even if it's a project that I'm not going to start yet or I might never tackle if I see the book around I'm like yep that one <laughs> that one so far far from just you know your, your basic internet research I'd go quite deep in it all have people commented on your creations with those sort of like but actually uh, <laughs> comments or are you kind of preempting those oh lord the the well actuallys are very strong out there um, <laughs> this it's always the minority but it always I, I get a lot better at it now and i do prepare for it and world war ii releases i tend to press press on post and then i'll see there's a notification of a comment or like come on come on come on come on oh yes they just said it's nice excellent um, <laughs> but yeah <laughs> it's the nature of that hobby and it's not just the female minis like a lot of the historical uh, war gamers you can sometimes get a bit passionate about it there does seem to be an element of this trying to prove me wrong sometimes so it's not like uh that's an unusual choice of you know 
shirt or something. It'll be like, ha, she's got it wrong. She's got it wrong. So now, like, tough skin is absolutely essential. But it is, it is utterly the, the minority, and most people are just so excited that, that everything exists, way more than I imagined when I first set up as well. Do you have a favorite story or a little factual tidbit that's come up as you've done research? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> as I go along, this, it seems to be the project that I'm working on at the moment tends to be the most exciting. I'm working on back. I've I've already got a range of uh, Soviet uh, World War Two women, but I'm expanding it at the moment. So currently, I'm learning a lot more about the the Eastern Front, and unfortunately, they're they're really grim tales. So off the top of my head, there's so many, but yeah, on the on the spot. Can't think of any. Oh, I do. I do. I have, I have an excellent one. There you go. <laughs> I just didn't want to give you a really grim fact, which I found oh. interesting, but was grim. The previous uh, project, which was the last Kickstarter that we ran, focused on women of Britain in World War II. So it was sort of women in Britain, British women overseas. But because the topic of World War II is so huge, that was the... Britain was the sort of um, the staging point for that one. And we had uh, included my, some of my favourite miniatures that we've produced so far is Adelaide Hall. So she's an American jazz singer who was sort of around with a lot of those jazz movers and shakers, the sort of 30s to 50s. But she moved to the UK just before World War II broke out. And she ended up joining ENSA, which is entertainment sort of performers that would go around various war zones or in different cities, just sort of keep morale up. And she has the world record for encores. And I can't remember off the top of my head what it is. It's ridiculous. It is, it's in the, like, I don't know, 30, 40 encores or something. Wow. But she was, um, she was performing in, it was in London. I can't remember the name of the building. But it was a standard gig that she had arranged. And the city started getting bombed. So everybody had to stay inside. And she, so she had a performance and it was just the full um, embodiment of the show must go on. So she, she just carried on and she did it and she did it till about half past three in the morning because everybody had to stay in there. And I kind of find it funny, as, although it's like a really brave and daring tale. I kind of like the idea of her running out of songs and like, uh... Let's do this one again. Everyone loved this song. <laughs> but yeah, she said it, she was singing and she could hear the bombing going on in the background. And obviously nobody knew if their building was going to get hit because it's quite a large building wow. as well. But they just kept on going. Like World record for encores is pretty cool. She's a very cool lady. <laughs> that is one wicked story. How brave. And the next day, she did another gig because she'd scheduled another gig in. Oh my gosh, she had voice so, left? She then, she then went back and just did a standard performance the next day. Like, what a hero. What an inspiration. <laughs> that is a really cool story. So you mentioned that she was a figure in uh, one of your Kickstarters. So let's talk about Kickstarters, oh. Kickstarters a little bit. Tell me about what led to your first Kickstarter. Well, I was very much a Kickstarter convert. Because I spent a little while being grumpy about it, and uh, and when I started, I started I started the company from debt because I'd got into a lot of debt from not being able to work when my wrists were so bad. Mm -hmm. But I had this sort of ingrained in my head that everything had to be funded by myself, and it's a bit of a, a not cultural thing. I guess it is to some extent where you kind of get it 
pushed into you that the harder you work, the more you suffer, <laughs> the purer something is. So oh, creators definitely it. have that yeah. mindset. So it's like, oh, I don't want to ask for money off people, so I'll just mm. toil through and really churn at it and, you know, make myself ill trying to get these miniatures out whilst being frustrated that I didn't have the funds to really bam a lot of minis out at the start. Obviously, miniatures take, there are a lot of money to produce. And I didn't realise, and a lot of other people, it's, you wouldn't know how much they cost. So eventually, after I sort of looking at people doing, you know, doing the same 28mm miniatures, not the same, but the same sort of thing, and just kind of being jealous and going, oh, they've made, they've made all of that money in a week. And uh, that would take me a long time to make. So I kind of did a bit of a, I then just spent about a year just watching other people's kickstarters just to Mm -hmm. see what's good what's bad whether you know how i felt about it all i backed quite a lot as well even if they were just for one mini or just for the pound support and i did quite heavily research it go okay this is it was definitely the if you can't beat them join them so let's let's have a look at it then let's see what how i can make this work and uh before i'd even decided exactly what I was going to do. I think I put a post up saying, I'm going to do a Kickstarter with a photo of me pressing a button. (laughs) (laughs) And I had so many people just going, oh my God, yes, 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 we're going to support this. This is going to be the best. I haven't even said what it is yet, but okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What did that feel like? It was... Because it's so bizarre that sometimes you can release miniatures, even now, but I'm totally used to it now, that you can sort of go, here we are, launch night, here is some brand new miniatures. And it can either get tumbleweed or it can get really big, you know, shared across the internet. Lots of the people doing the shut up and take my monies and real, like, real movement. And then you look at the PayPal, <laughs> you're like, where are you? Because <laughs> there's no, like, full incentive to get it right now unless it's a payday or something like that. Whereas Kickstarter, it's just, there's so much excitement and people are just like, here's my card, here's my card, take it. Mm -hmm. And it did take me quite a while to get my head around. And I still fully can't. I can understand the psychology of it, but it's just that, because before I was saying, here is the completed product you can buy now. You can have it tomorrow. They're like, yeah, maybe I'll pick it up. Like, or here's a thing that doesn't exist yet and you won't get it for a while. (gasps) Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Okay, I do not understand, but I'm going in. I feel so called <laughs> out right now. <laughs> so, okay, so from I just looked at so many different Kickstarters, mostly in the same sort of vein as myself. So that 28 mil. I looked at roleplay sort of Kickstarters, obviously the larger ones like Reaper, they're, they're enormous, but more the size of what I was sort of aiming for, for the real like, deep research I guess as well yeah as well as just looking at all peripheral and looking at updates and thinking that what I as a backer what do I like what don't I like what works who seems to have their act together sort of thing it's a very good way of just learning a lot of different stuff in business just see what's what's working so kind of diving into the mind of Annie right before or Mm -hmm. as you're prepping your first Kickstarter what were some of these insights that you took away from other Kickstarters that you were testing in your first one? Okay, so I knew to start small, which I still is still my um, advice to everyone. So I didn't start a Kickstarter that had to be absolutely enormous, have all sorts of fancy extras, 
the original goal was a thousand pounds and it was for I think it was about 10 miniatures it was Ghosts of Gaia so it was 10 sci-fi miniatures and I hadn't done any anything sci-fi before so I thought okay this will test test on the kickstarter so to start small was definitely the the main I'd paid for the sculpts and I, I just needed that was the amount that I'd get them into molds and get them into production so it was a low risk if it didn't fund it didn't fund it now feels absolutely bizarre that I had so much stress and like what if it doesn't fund just because I'll look silly and it made it took over 10,000 so I definitely hit the target wow. and that, I had zero idea of how well it was going to go and there's people going oh it'll be great it'll be great like but I don't know I have no idea and I know that internet fanfare doesn't translate into sales so I was really mm-hmm. so nervous about it all Mm-hmm. And having watched other people's launches, you know, where it starts and you just see the numbers go up and on, on those like those massive ones, say like the Reaper ones, where you watch it live and it's just like, oh, it's gone up by 10, 20, whoa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then suddenly it's you on the other side. Um, so I was absolutely terrified. I had had some negative comments from some other people in the industry as well that were very sort of anti-Kickstarter because I'd been asking around, asking different people what their thoughts were. And I did have a bit of negativity that was like, you really shouldn't do this. But it was one of the best things I've ever done for the business. And I realised, as I realised just before this interview, that I've done seven Kickstarters and they've all been successful, which is not a lot of people can say. That is amazing. What do you feel you learned from doing that first one? I I learned they can go bigger than I expected. But I still, I was still really glad because I didn't go too wild on the on the extras, and that's something I'd seen, and I, that was the big thing that I basically had a sign to myself like, don't get carried away, Annie. So you know, the goal's a thousand, and I think the first day it it went to about three thousand or something, and then everyone in the comments are like, make all of these, you could do this, you could do that, and it's very easy to get swept up in this sort of like people lifting you up in the air through the street <laughs> digitally going yes do this do that and you're like yes I will but you haven't budgeted it and that's where it really falls apart on some of them where they just keep adding and they go you know what it's funded so everyone can have this now everyone can have this now and they then sometimes the total doesn't actually rise because you're giving so much away or they'll introduce new bun- mega bundles and then the price actually goes down so it's really you have to be really sort of sober with yourself to enjoy it but also be really business minded at the same time so that's something that I've carried throughout I've occasionally got a little bit carried away but always always in ways that are safe nothing that's too too wild but always they're like Ah, you know what? Yeah, I'm gonna chuck a couple bits in. I said I wouldn't, but it's it's totally doable. But it's when the that kills what's what's originally been a really solid Kickstarter. That's always the massive like big warning flag of don't do that. So a Kickstarter That's... will be successful and it's great, and then they ruin it. <laughs> so it is the product yeah. of its own success. That's a really great tip. So as you have done more and more Kickstarters, oh goodness, seven successful Kickstarters, (laughs) which I imagine you grew in scope from that original 1,000 pounds. Do you sort of plan out any stretch goals and extras like completely ahead of time? Yes. I tend to go a bit low on stretch goals because it it hurts or it hurts my brain. I find it harder to to balance 
So what I did the first Kickstarter, I did the original, I think it was five or six models, and I had ten. So I'd planned these to be stretch goals. They're all all unlocked, uh, unlocked additional add-ons, so you still have to pay for them. And I think the stretch goals I generally have had throughout that you get free do tend to be the sort of badges and stickers and the sort of smaller stuff. So you still get some in a bit bit of a bonus, but I'm not there just sort of shoveling the money back again, <laughs> going, mm. ah, take this back. But the so the first one, the mistake that I felt for me was doing the small amount and then unlocking the rest. Because the first load, a lot of people don't come back. They back it and then they're done and then they fill in the pledge manager. It's a smaller percentage of people that are there for the whole ride. So even when I'd unleashed more models, which are really exciting, there's still a chunk of people that won't know about it. So they'll have backed for those six, but if they knew there was the potential of a 10, then they might have gone in for that. So Mm. I've sort of switched. It's hard to balance that because you can also do the here you go from the start, you get everything in this Kickstarter, but then you're limited by that because it can't get too big or you're giving too much stuff away. And if it doesn't go very big, then that's not a really good deal for that particular pledge. So I find that's quite an intricate balance, but I'm absolutely confident that I've nailed that. (laughs) There's been a few ones. I think Freya's Wrath was one where I went, oh, it's gone a little bit, but it was still still excellent. So what I've switched to tends to be a starting pledge. Just trying to remember now. I changed it. I changed everything up on the last Kickstarter. I was about to ask about the last one. Yeah. So yeah, I tend to do straight from the beginning now an everything pledge. And that's that I know that the people that are big fans that love what I do, that are gonna back everything regardless, they can just click that at the start and it's done. And then it starts off where you get a fairly good deal, but obviously as more stuff gets unlocked, it gets tastier and tastier. So that's that helps because then those people might not have came back to see that there was a new, you know, larger pledge sort of unleashed but I changed it up again so very very often I have the sculpts or at least the core of the sculpts are ready so trying to minimize as much risk as possible but obviously that means that you have to put money down before the kickstarter which can be a bit of a like I need a kickstarter to do a kickstarter (laughs) (laughs) sort of thing because the sculpts are the most expensive part but the less risk I figured and especially from the first one that was the, the thing I was really like, everything has to be sculpted. Because mm-hmm. I'd seen so many where sculpts had got lost in the mail or a sculptor had gone AWOL or something like that. And then it all sort of starts trickling into more and more delays. So this this has got to be done. I think the first one, I made sure they were all master cast as well, just in case, mm-hmm. in case anything died. Because sculpts can just disintegrate or explode in moulds. Um, (laughs) it's the worst thing ever (laughs) luckily it has not happened to me for years now the casters I've got are absolutely amazing but it depends on who's doing it and the materials and all this so there's always a risk so with that I made it like utterly you know it jinx it by saying risk-free, but it's it's been done now, so I can well, say that it. <laughs> it was, but it was risk-free. And as I've gone along, I've I've got it so some things, you know, some stretch goals haven't been sculpted because I'm now super confident in the manufacturers, the sculptures, uh, sculptors, and everything that we've got sort of as a network. And the last Kickstarter I did uh, was Women of World War Two Britain, and I decided to do a traditional Kickstarter. 
<laughs> like like it was designed for. So I, I was sat there. I was sat there going, I really want to do some more Women of World War Two models, but I don't have the budget for it. And I'm moaning about it. And I'm like, oh yeah, Kickstarter, that's what it's actually for. <laughs> so I didn't want to go in with sketches because that is that is a bad way. I think now, at the very early days of Kickstarter, you could kind of just throw up your biro scribble on a bit of paper. Whereas now people want to see stuff and they've been burnt so much. So I, I totally mm-hmm. understand that. The more you've got at the start to show people, the more confidence they're going to have. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, I've got my previous six Kickstarters. I've got because I'm not just a Kickstarter company, I've got the web shop, I've got a strong reputation, so I've got that going for me, and I'll give them some sculpts, I'll get some done, and then we're going to totally old school it, and this Kickstarter could go, it could make these models exist, which would be brilliant, and it can sky's the limit, basically, just depending on how, how it goes. So um, sort of like unseen stretch goals that can be unlocked. Yeah, we actually had a stretch pool, which I really liked. So instead of you go, here's the list of all the things. And something I've never done either is when you launch, launch all of the stretch goal figures as well. Because then it can either, depending on how it goes, I found stretch goals really good for sort of boosting it up a little bit sometimes. Mm -hmm. So if say you have them all at 1,000 each, but you do 5,000 in the first day, say, and your target's one. You unlock a load of things really quickly, mm-hmm. and then you get to the middle part, the middle horror of a Kickstarter, where all your demons come out. <laughs> it's just like some sort of torture, which is why I tend to do very short Kickstarters, just to eliminate that section. But it can go quite slow, and that's when you get a bit of dropouts as well. So if you can then sort of... sort of like I'm making an accordion motion right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit Thank you for describing so, that. Yeah. So when it's um when it's that middle bit, if you can put a few stretch goals, you know, a bit closer together, it can just really give it a bit of fuel, you know. But this time I did a stretch pool, and it was so basically that? like How's that different from <laughs> so it was a pool of all the different ideas that I'd had for what we can do for stretch goals. None of them were sculpted. So it was like, right, okay, let's. we're a team now. This is a project. And the nature of the history makes it really good too. So we went, what do you want? The stretch goal, the stretch pool is very fluid. You can add to it. And then I'll obviously make the final decision. But it was sort of like, what should we have for the next stretch goal? What do we want? And people go, hero dogs. Right, right, hero dogs, they're coming out next. And it was really, it was way more interactive than I'd had. Whereas before it was like, these are the fixed free stretch goals, and that's all you get in. <laughs> which, which is in time. It's probably the next one I run is going to be like that, because I want to do another sh- very short, sharp one. But the nature of this one was like, let's just get models made. What do you want? Let's do it. And it that was, sounds it was really fun for <laughs> folks who follow your work and support your work in general to get to engage and interact in that way. Oh, definitely. Cause I did so much research beforehand, but then there were still people going, did you know about... Like, Ah, it's going in. And that one's going in. <laughs> and so many. And near the end, I had no idea about girl guides in World War Two, And someone had sort of off the cuff mentioned it. And then it, he started sort of going, maybe girl guides? Have you got any space for girl guides? And I put it in as the last stretch goal. It's like, okay, but <laughs> we've got to hit this target. And then I found myself saying, well, come on, I want girl guides to happen. So it was really, yeah, just like a real fun team teamwork, which... 
I just wanted to really use what a Kickstarter can be rather than just being the pre-order. So it's not just yeah. me giving, well, giving, you know, presenting to people. It's they get to feed in and make it happen and be part of the experience. And it was, it was just so, so fun. So you mentioned that this is really different from how you've done Kickstarters yeah. before. <laughs> you think that, what did you learn from that? Do you think that's something you would do again? Or do you prefer the more pre-order style of Kickstarter that you've done? It was a lot more work. And even though I'm saying, you know, we're going, throw it in, let's release that. Obviously, every single sculpt costs the company a chunk of money so it was still carefully decided out of that okay yeah that one's gonna work whereas there are other ideas i was going yep that is great but it's not gonna make a great mini or a great selling mini so it was even though it had the appearance of being very sort of free range i still was very (laughs) very calculated with it all and it is so important to to be really strict with the budget and i think when, when people go, oh, but I wanted this to be in there. So, well, the most important thing is getting these miniatures made. And mm-hmm. we can always do things afterwards. And I'd much rather there be a few grumpy people that, you know, maybe wanted this in, but it's not happened, than to just sort of promise the world. And then it, like I was saying earlier, where the core thing is funded and then people ruin it by adding all this crazy stuff afterwards, which will either cause it to fail, you know, long term or take a lot longer. Um, so through this one, I I know the next the, this this last one did kill me a little bit, and it did. The fulfillment went into COVID times, Oof. so it's kind of just now like associated with that. But it was it was a very big Kickstarter for me anyway, not for <laughs> not for the world. But compare, I've been doing very sort of ten to twenty figures, and this was a lot more because they were unit based. So I think the next one I'm going to do, I'm going to go back to doing a short and sharp one. But I totally would do what I did with that again. It'd just be at a time when I'm not overloaded. Because I manage all this by myself. And there's a lot. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the world. In a lot. And then it's a lot in 2020. Which is a whole other type of a lot. (laughs) It's a whole other thing. So the bigger the Kickstarter, obviously, the more pressure to, to hit all the targets, to get everything perfect. What I've written down as another note is, as a bit of advice, if you are running one, is to get some help. And it's, even if you've got somebody just to take over your some of your day-to-day stuff or somebody to, to be on the Kickstarter either way, but to do all of your day-to-day stuff and run a Kickstarter, as I've done seven times, <laughs> is not recommended. Because it's almost like running the Kickstarter as a whole full-time thing. You've just constantly you know, got to be posting here, posting there, answering questions. And that communication is so important. And again, because of the people being burnt. You've really got to give them that assurance. But that, you say that on top of all of your usual, even if it's just life things like cooking dinner, you know, it all just is, is really heavy. It's amazing and it's fun, but it is very heavy. And if you mm-hmm. can schedule a little, little break, even if it's a weekend off afterwards, then that is highly recommended. Gosh, I <laughs> feel like you have shared a number of different wisdoms about your seven (laughs) Kickstarters length of experience. If we were to simmer those down into a condensed, say like three takeaways for Annie's Kickstarter tips, what would you say those are? Start small and don't get carried away as one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Look after yourself during and afterwards. 
and be honest with your communication and regular with your communication. I reckon that's them. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think you've covered it very well and very succinctly. And gosh, you're you've mentioned several times like folks on Kickstarter have been burned by Kickstarters before. All of us have that one Kickstarter that never fulfilled. <laughs> so building that trust with your community through, like you said, open and honest communication is so vital just in any sort of community building, really. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right. So as we wrap up this interview, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to share? Um, I don't think so. I've kind of, I've been looking at the time and just going, have all of my knowledge as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so I've definitely got up a whole bunch of stuff out there and hopefully it'll be useful for people. Um, I learned a lot, so um, it was at least super useful yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> if people haven't heard of me, they can check me out. I don't know if you have links sort of under the show or anything. Yeah, um, um, yeah. that was going to be my next question. If cool. folks want to learn more about what you do, about Bad Squiddo Games, where can they find you? All over the internet, badsquiddogames.com. And then we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube have a, a regular Sunday show, which is very fun. Um, so we just just put Bad Squidder Games into any of those, and we'll come up. Twitter, I'm very active on, and I absolutely love it. That's that's it. We've got a mailing list too, but yeah, it's all sort of on there. Uh, just put Bad Squidder, and a million Bad Squidder things come up. Yeah, <laughs> and go we check also, out Bad Squidder oh, Games, as well as awesome female miniatures we have a growing amount of animals of like guinea pigs and more unusual things you might not get because i absolutely love guinea pigs so i have to mention them in every interview and a whole massive range now it's really growing of resin scenics which are also quirky so i like to do things that aren't the standard stuff that's been done a million times so that sounds all really sorts cool, of cool stuff. At the top of the show, was you like casually mentioned something that sounded really awesome? Was it <laughs> rabbits versus guinea pigs post-apocalyptic game? Am it I remembering is, that right? Yeah, it's it was called Gully Pets, but we're now on to War Pigs. Um, the main no, writer, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the main War writer Pigs. is Delaney King, who you might have heard of. You should totally get her on here at some point as well. Uh, that King sounds King, amazing. She's one of those people that just have way too much talent that do everything. She's the best. So we've been working on that. It's, it's taken a while longer than uh, longer than we intended, but that's mostly because I am juggling and spinning a million plates. Sort of, it's that spinning plates, juggling, and on a unicycle at the same time. So we want to make sure it's really, really good when we get it out there. But yeah, that's that's definitely in the works. I can't wait um, to see that come to fruition. So far, amazing, of course. And we have miniatures, we have some miniatures already, which people have been like eagerly getting, getting together. So it's like little guinea pigs and bunnies on motorbikes and tanks and all this, like little ones. <laughs> yes, please. Oh, so, yes. Just, I'm just making all the stuff that I find really exciting. I'm like, I have the power. I have the power to make this stuff now. Yes. <laughs> so powerful. <laughs> well, Annie, thank you so much for coming on Behold Her Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's been really fun. On Beholder Podcast today, we have Sasha Augustine, the one-woman wonder behind Sunshadow Arts, which really, truly brings artistry to gaming. Her functional art includes dice, dice trays, all sorts of gaming accessories, and more. Really excited to chat with her. Sasha, thank you so much for coming on Behold Her. Well, thank you for having me. So to start us off creating for tabletop RPGs, I imagine that that's a hobby that you're interested in as, interested in as well. How did you 
get introduced to tabletop? Well, I've been playing D&D specifically ever since I was a little kid. It was something that my family did together as a hobby. So my dad and my two older brothers and I would play D&D. And I remember being too little to even play. And my dad would let me roll the dice for the monsters. And I'd just sit there and like draw dragons while they would play. And then eventually when I got a little bit older, then I would jump in with my own characters. So I've been playing tabletop role-playing games for a very long time. Oh, wow. That What amazing memories to have. I mean, you hear so many stories now of folks who are using D&D as a family activity or to teach their kids different life skills through D&D. Uh, so it's really cool to talk to someone who's grown up having done that. Uh, do you remember, are there any ex- stories or experiences that jump out in your mind playing D&D with your family? The only really clear memory that I have was that my very first character was a dwarven fighter and liked to like attack the legs of horses like for like riding combat to try and like take people down to her level because she was so short. But that's literally like the only that's like my earliest memory. But that's also like a legit strategy for her mounting combat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, that's really fun. How did you then transition from playing D&D to creating really gorgeous accessories for it? So I played D&D a lot as a kid. And then, you know, as my siblings and I got older and we all kind of went about our lives, we stopped playing for several years. And I've always been an artist and I actually used to be a scenic designer for theater. So I have undergrad, grad school, very extensive art and design training. And then it was five years ago or so, my brother calls me up and says, hey, have you heard about this show called Critical Role? And I was like, oh, no, I haven't. He's like, you need to check that out. So sat down, watched Critical Role. This was like, maybe like they had done like 15 episodes, I think at that point, it was Mm -hmm. several years ago and loved it, of course. And he and I, watching Critical Role kind of got us back interested in playing D&D. And so then we kind of, you know, with modern technology and the internet and being able to play online, we actually got our family back together playing D&D recently online. That's amazing. Yeah, that kind of like reintroduced D&D into like our family connection, which has been really great because we live like all over the country. So it's been a great way to like reconnect with family. And so that had kind of gotten D&D and tabletop gaming like kind of back into my brain. And I kind of sort of backwards fell into making accessories. I actually was in a really bad car accident a few years ago. And I ended up with a spinal injury that caused a lot of nerve damage to my arms and my hands. So all of a sudden, I couldn't hold a paintbrush and I couldn't hold a pencil and all of these things that I had used to use for creating art. And as kind of part of my art therapy, so to speak, I had gotten interested in acrylic pouring and resin work because you just mix it up in a cup and then you pour it. I was like, I can do that when my hands don't work very well. So that was kind of how I got into making dice trays and things like that because I would buy wooden trays and then pour acrylic and resin into the bottom to make like these artistic pieces. And so that was kind of how the two came together. Wow, what a like a circumstance where you found this sort of silver lining uh, to something like that could be pretty tragic. It was the thing that got me through the hard times, you know. So 
as you were starting out creating, so I feel like creating dice is something so many of us want to do. And then it's like, well, how do I even get started? Because you have to learn about like resin pouring, acrylic pouring in itself. And then the whole dice making aspect of it, like where does one get molds? How do you make molds? I see that you actually have courses that you teach. Were there courses that you took or did you kind of figure it out as you go? So I started making dice several years ago, and that was before everyone was doing it. And so at the time that I started learning, there were no resources. There were no videos, there were no classes, there was no place to learn. And at the time, there were only, I only knew a handful of people who were actually making handmade resin dice, and they were very, uh, didn't want to share their secrets. So I couldn't even find anyone to like help me or give me any tips. So I basically am entirely self-taught in how to make dice. I knew I like a little bit about that's mold so true making. For so many people, just because there haven't been that many resources. Yeah, so it's like I knew some stuff about mold making and casting just from my theater background, but I looked at like a lot of like resin jewelry artists mm. and things like that, and other types of resin art to learn how to do things. And then it was just so much trial and error to figure out how to do it myself. And that's a big reason why I decided to do all of the courses and the teaching materials that I've created is because I didn't want new dice makers to have to struggle like I struggled to find information. Like I want to be able to help anyone who wants to learn, learn how to make dice. What an amazing resource to make available, which honestly, like you said, hasn't been available because folks are so secretive about their process. Is there like one thing that you feel like people going into dice making have no idea about that's sort of like a surprise that makes it a much more of a feat than than like the casual dice collector might know? It is a lot more work to make dice than most people realize. It, it's not like, oh, you just sit down in half an hour and you pop out a die. You know, it takes several, you know, when you put all the pieces together, it can take several weeks to make a single die. And it can take hours and hours and hours of labor to make a single die. So I think the amount of time that it takes to make dice is something that's very surprising to new dice makers and also how much it costs because it's very expensive. Oh, picking up a new hobby. (laughs) Yeah. You always fall down that rabbit hole. Let's talk about Kickstarters. So the theme of this episode is Femmes Who Kickstart. So tell me a little bit about what brought about your first Kickstarter. Okay, well, the first Kickstarter that I was a part of was not one that I ran myself, but it was kind of how I got into doing Kickstarters. I had partnered with The Rook and the Raven. Are you familiar with that company? Yes. Yes, they make the disc-bound gaming notebooks. And actually, my brother and sister-in-law own that company. And Yeah, it's, it's a family. D&D and tabletop gaming is a family thing. So they had asked if I would make some custom dice trays and like gaming storage chests for their Kickstarter. So I designed some custom colors that matched the covers of their books for that Kickstarter. So I ended up partnering with them. And I think I made maybe about 100 pieces for their Kickstarter. And so that kind of introduced me a little bit like tangentially to like how Kickstarters work and how they're run and how it functions out and how you fulfill them because I wasn't really familiar with crowdfunding too much before that. I mean, I had backed some Kickstarters, but I had never been on the other side of the screen, so to speak. So I learned kind of about Kickstarters and crowdfunding from that experience. And then I was working on 
like the first dice trays and like a gaming storage chest that I had made were not very portable. So I was designing a new line of gaming storage that was something you could take on the go because so many people travel for their gaming nights. And so I decided to try out running a Kickstarter for that. It was called the Adventure Line of Bespoke Gaming Storage. And so that was kind of how I got into doing my first Kickstarter was, okay, well, I have this idea and I know sort of how Kickstarter works. So let's try it out and see how how it would work for me. What wisdoms did you take just from observing Rook and Raven's Kickstarter that you were a part of that you used to sort of like make sure uh, you were gonna, going to have a successful Kickstarter? A lot of what I learned from that first experience was one, that Kickstarters have a tendency to get much bigger than you ever anticipate. So you have to kind of plan for a lot more than you might think. They, they tend to do better than you think they will. We'll put it that way. So being prepared for it to grow and also make sure that you allow yourself enough time for fulfillment and make sure that you add in extra time for doing things that you don't think about. Like if your supplies are delayed or things that you have to kind of wrap your mind around when you're making something at that scale, when you're making so many items in a certain time period. So it kind of helped me sort of prep out for some of those eventualities that I might not have thought of before doing my first Kickstarter. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about that. With Kickstarters, you're fulfilling so many things all at once. You're producing so many things all at once. It's really a very different beast than uh, producing things as orders come in. Definitely. What was a surprise as you were running your first Kickstarter that you hadn't anticipated? Well, even though I knew that Kickstarters could blow up, I didn't think it would be big. It's that kind of inexperience. And, you know, it was very, at the time that I did my first Kickstarter, I was still doing my business as like a part-time hobby business. I wasn't even doing Sunshadow Arts full-time. And I was convinced that no one was going to buy any and no one was going to like my idea. And I didn't have a lot of people that I could float it to ahead of time because I didn't know people in the community that I could be like, hey, is this a cool idea or is it stupid? And so I was convinced that it was stupid and no one would buy any. And then of course, you know, that Kickstarter funded like 400% above the original goal. So even though, even though I knew that Kickstarters blow up, I somehow was convinced that mine was not going to do that. So that was the biggest surprise, I think. (laughs) It's like its own special kind of imposter syndrome. Yes, yes, very. So uh, let's see. So your, it grew so much bigger than you're expecting. Can we talk a little bit about stretch goals. You mentioned you have to plan ahead for things to blow up and be really big. So did you plan a lot of stretch goals ahead of time? I didn't because I didn't think that it would matter because I didn't think it would even fund. So I actually did not plan stretch goals ahead of time. And so I kind of was making up stretch goals on the fly. And definitely that that's an easy place like just advice-wise for anyone thinking of running a Kickstarter or a crowdfunding campaign, don't overdo your stretch goals because that's where you can get into trouble. (laughs) Um, Yeah, other interviewers mentioned that very specifically as well. Yes, yes, that's the one thing. And I, before I did my second Kickstarter, like the biggest piece of advice a lot of people said is like, just don't do stretch goals, period. So I I feel like I did better on my second Kickstarter in terms of managing the stretch goals, but I definitely like way over committed myself to a lot of things. And, you know, it's, it's very important to have those things planned out beforehand. 
because once it launches and you're in the middle of the Kickstarter, it's really exciting. So then you just start making decisions based on your excitement and your enthusiasm instead of like actually like calculated business decisions. Mm. Can you give some examples of what makes a good stretch goal to avoid overcommitting out of excitement? Doing stretch goals that don't require extra work or extra money. You know, for example, offering something in a different color is a pretty easy thing to accomplish instead of like offering an entirely new item that then you have to produce. So, you know, like variations on a theme or if there's a way to like bundle the existing items that you're offering. So if you're offering, you know, in one of my Kickstarters, it was dice and dice trays and notebooks. So then there was like the possibility to like bundle all three together so that you're not creating a new product, but you're grouping your products in a new way or things like that can kind of help make the stretch goals a little bit easier to maintain without creating a ton of extra work for yourself. Oh, so what else did you feel like you learned from that first Kickstarter that really, really informed the second one? That I need to trust myself that my ideas are good and that people will actually buy them so that I'm more prepared for the over-pledging and the, <laughs> you know, and, and actually making sure that there was lots of time, building extra time. Because, you know, you set out unexpected delivery date. But then if all of a sudden your Kickstarter funds like five times bigger than you expected, and then all of a sudden you have to try and produce five times as many things in the same timeline. Mm. So, you know, kind of anticipating some of those things, making some of the timelines more fluid. I, one of the big things that I learned when, on my first Kickstarter is that when tiers sold out, I just added more spots to the same tier instead of what I've learned is a better process is that creating a new tier at, that's exactly the same, except for that it has a further in the future delivery date. Ooh, great So that tip. you have more time. Like if this one so sells out, then you just make another batch that will have another delivery date into the future so that you're not having to try and produce more items in the same time frame. So have you found that your Kickstarters sort of just really resonated with people and they promoted it through word of mouth? Or do you have any tips for sort of marketing your Kickstarter? How much communication is too much communication or just the right amount? Well, the important thing I think in terms of marketing Kickstarters is that you need to be marketing way before your Kickstarter launches. Like you have to really be planning, you know, you should be starting marketing six months ahead of your Kickstarter. Oh, wow. You know, really like, and a lot of it depends on how big of an audience base you have when you start. You know, you should be building up an audience base, building up your social media following. If you have a, like an email list that you're compiling, getting people to sign up so that when you launch your Kickstarter, you are hitting the ground running with a wide swath of people who are already ready to invest in your product instead of waiting until the Kickstarter launches and then hoping people figure it out in, you know, the 30 days before the Kickstarter is over. Whereas like if you already have people waiting at the gates when it launches, it's much more easy to be successful. Are there certain types of content or messaging that you recommend for like leading up to marketing? Do you just show everything you've got or are there types of sneak peeks you recommend? Oh, you definitely don't want to show your full hand. You know, you got to tease. When I did my second Kickstarter, I all of the early marketing was just, it was a very zoomed in photo of 
you know, like a texture or a color palette of an item. So you couldn't even tell what the item was. You just saw, oh, this glitter and this foil and this, you know, pigment with just the name of the Kickstarter. So there were several like teaser images. I think there were several weeks of teaser images that were just different color palettes and things like that before you even started seeing full product images. And then it was just like all sorts of different product images. And, you know, you kind of, as you get closer to the Kickstarter, reveal more and more and more about what it's about. Do you have any recommendations for during a Kickstarter? And I guess communication continues after, after yeah. a Kickstarter. How do you adjust your communication for those stages? Well, in terms of while the Kickstarter is running, a lot of it is just reminding people that there's a Kickstarter going, which seems obvious, but sometimes people forget. Like you just, ev- sometimes every day, every couple of days, you know, you need to be plugging it constantly. Uh, that your Kickstarter is running and this is what's going on, but then also notifying people of milestones. You know, if you hit your goal, people need to know. If you hit a stretch goal, people want to know. You know, if you're getting, if you're halfway through the Kickstarter, let people know. If you're all getting close to the end, you know, just a constant mm-hmm. streams so that people who maybe were like, oh yeah, I want to back that Kickstarter, and then they forget to go do it, you know, have constant reminders of, oh yeah, I need to go do that. If you're like me and you forget to do stuff all the time, it's like good to have someone who keeps reminding you, hey, hey remember to check this out, remember to check this out. So it's it's really like, because a Kickstarter is such a short period of time, you really have to like aggressively plug for those 30 days. And people understand that it's a Kickstarter. And most people understand that they're not going to get sick of seeing the content because they know that you have a limited amount of time to plug it. Mm-hmm. And then after the Kickstarter, the most important thing is just staying in communication with your backers so that they know what's going on. You know, if you have a setback, let them know. If something comes up, let them know. I've been very fortunate that I've had a lot of setbacks with fulfilling the Kickstarters, you know, supplies not being able to get through, coronavirus hitting, all of these things. But if you, as long as you let people know that there's a delay, most people are going to be fine with it because they know that it's something that's worth waiting for. Are there any other little tips or tricks that you feel like people don't realize going into a Kickstarter that I haven't asked you about? The one thing when people ask for advice that I always tell them is remember to pay yourself. And it sounds silly, but people will forget to compensate themselves for the work that they do for a Kickstarter because so much of the work that you do is before the Kickstarter launches and during the Kickstarter launch. And so you need to figure out how much time and energy that you are investing and make sure that you include paying yourself for what happens before the Kickstarter as part of the Kickstarter process. Because a lot of people forget to pay themselves for the work that they did before the launch. And it's like, there's a lot that goes into it. You need to make sure that you're compensating yourself for it. Oh, yeah. I feel like creators especially struggle with valuing their time and all of their time. Always pay yourself more than you think. If you state a number to pay yourself and you're like, oh gosh, that seems a little high, raise it a little more and then you're probably in the ballpark of where you should be (laughs) because we always undervalue ourselves. What has it meant for you being a femme in this hobby, but also as a creator, honestly, in, in this industry, I suppose, and in the Kickstarter community? It's been really interesting because I feel like especially when I first started, the bulk of my customers were male, which I found really surprising. But in the last 
couple of years, it's flipped so much that I have so many female customers now that I find it very exciting that I can create something that resonates with other people in the community and creating something that people feel like they haven't been able to find before within this community, like creating new spaces for people who don't identify as male because it has been such a male driven hobby Mm -hmm. that I feel like there's a lot more space now in the community, very forward facing because, you know, women have been a part of this hobby forever, but has never been presented that way Mm -hmm. media wise. And now that's becoming such a huge thing of just being able to see so many other female creators and female and non-male identifying individuals within this community really fills me with a lot of hope and joy. Yay. Gosh, I'd also say as you were speaking, I kept thinking about how resonates is sort of a pun for you. Um, so I probably should have asked you this at the beginning, but better late than never. Do you want to talk a little bit about Sun Shadow Arts and what sets it apart from other dice makers? I think at least the direction that I am moving in dice making is I'm leaning very heavily on my design background and my scenic design background. So I'm looking at creating a lot of dice that are very specifically creating imagery and scenes within the dice. So landscapes or images of people and silhouettes and things like that, as opposed to just mixing different color combinations together, which is what so much of the dice making world is about. I'm really looking at pushing the dice making community in a new direction of just how far can we take it? What kinds of things can we put in dice that are really unusual and trying to capture little miniature worlds within the dice that we use? Yeah, I saw on your website that you've done, uh, are they like little teacups, like a little scene? Yeah, the yeah, Tea of the Dead so Dice. so beautiful. Yeah, those are inspired by Caduceus Clay from Critical Role. And they're, it's a little steaming cup of tea with flowers and mushrooms and plants around it. And then when you flip it over, you have like under the dirt and you have skeletons and uh, bones that are peeking out through the dirt. That's so cool. Not just like, so you already are inserting a scene into the resin, which is just beautiful. But then you also thought about how, well, dice are, it's like a 360 degree piece of art. So flipping it over, you don't just see the bottom of the teacups. You have a whole other scene. That's I'm like moving my arms a lot. It kind of blows my mind. Um, Goodness. So is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you wanted to mention about Kickstarters, about Sunshadow Arts, anything? There's nothing that immediately comes to mind. Right. Yeah, no problem. Um, Well, then, uh, as we wrap up this conversation, Sasha, if folks want to learn more about what you do, what's coming up new in Sunshadow Arts, maybe even check out your dice making courses that you run. How do they find you on the Internet? Well, you can find me at www.sunshadowarts.com at the website. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Sunshadow Arts. Ah, nice and succinct. Love when those social media handles can be all the same. Yep. Makes it easy. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking time to come on Behold Her. I've got to say, I can really tell your uh, teaching background, just the way you process information and communicate it. This was like Oh, I feel like I learned so, so much from chatting with you. 
Well, I've always wanted to be a teacher. It was always something that I've really, really enjoyed. And I love that I've been able to find a way to share my love of dice making and dice with the world. Oh, hooray. Shauna Germain is a writer of many mediums, poetry, essays, novels, and more. But if you're listening to Behold Her, you probably know her best for games like Numenera and No Thank You Evil with Monty Cook Games. Find her on Twitter at Shauna Germain. That's S-H-A-N-N-A-G-E-R-M-A-I-N. When I was six years old, in the ancient year of 1978, I won my very first writing award. It was for a poetry contest put on by Icy, the company that makes those slushy drinks you get out of a machine at the gas station or the grocery store. I'm sure my mom has a copy of the poem somewhere, and I was very proud of my accomplishment at the time, because I wanted so deeply, even then, to be a writer a poet, a novelist, a storyteller. Plus, I got a a year, a month, I can't remember now, some amount of free ICs for what seemed like an impossible stretch of time. Looking back, I realize now that the poem I wrote for that contest was not actually a poem. It was something else entirely. It was marketing copy. I had looked deep inside my blue-tongued six-year-old mouth and found the words to describe the great joys that a raspberry-flavored mix of sugar and ice brought to my life. I had written an ode on why I loved ices and why everyone else should love them too. In hindsight, it's no wonder they chose my poem. I told them pretty much everything they wanted to hear. By age seven, I'd left behind my career as an advertising maven and it turned to writing deeply aching, overwrought love poems. Stories that sounded a lot like a mix of Watership Down and A Sound of Thunder. And long journal entries about how I didn't know what to write about, and how my dog was the very best dog. I wouldn't return to writing marketing copy for more than two decades, when I started writing ad material for a variety of companies, some of whom I deeply believed in, and some of whom just paid really well. While doing that, I learned a lot of important lessons, not the least of which was, it's always, always easier to write with passion and excitement about something you love, or at least like. Fast forward to 2012, when I was getting ready to run my first Kickstarter. Well, my first two Kickstarters, almost at the same time. My first Kickstarter was for a little tiny project, a book of erotic stories and comics called Geek Love. Shortly after launching that, Monty and Cook and I also launched a Kickstarter for a role-playing game called Numenera. There were a bunch of reasons why we ended up launching two Kickstarters at almost the same time, but suffice to say none of those reasons were probably worth it. Running two Kickstarters at the same time, especially when they're your first Kickstarters, is just so hard for so many reasons. I don't recommend it. Part of the reason is that Kickstarters have their own time. They don't move at the same pace as the real world. It's like riding a roller coaster. You have those parts where you can hear every single tick of the track as you go slowly up. It's like you'll never reach the top. And suddenly you're there and you breathe and the ride down the hill is so fast you're not sure it even happened. You're at the bottom and you're all shook up and you don't really remember anything except the screaming. Now do that like 30 times or 100 or 150 That's what Kickstarter time is like. 
Now imagine you're on a roller coaster that's sitting on top of a huge erratically spinning plate. That's what Kickstarter time is like when you're running two of them at the same time. But for all its difficulties, it was truly a wild and wonderful ride and kicked off huge changes in my life. By the time those first two Kickstarters were finished, two incredible communities had been built around erotica and gaming. Monty Cook and I had started a tabletop game design company, and somehow we'd hit a pie-in-the-sky half-a-million-dollar stretch goal where we'd promised to make a Numenera film, which we eventually did. Okay, at this point, I'm sure you're asking, you know, this is cool and all, but what does running a Kickstarter have to do with poems about Ices? Here's my answer. It's about following your passion about fiercely believing in your art, your creation, your love, so strongly that you can make others believe in it too. Because here's the part of the icy story I didn't tell you. I was so proud of that award. I had a certificate and everything. I couldn't wait to go get my first free icy. And then someone told me it was stupid. It was just one person, and honestly, I can't even remember who it was now. Someone at school or where at the store where I went to get my IC. I don't remember. But I do remember that moment. That horrible sinking feeling when something I deeply loved. Well, two things I deeply loved. Being a writer and a giant cup of flavored sugar became a shame. I was lucky. I had a supportive family, a family who told me I could be anything I wanted, supportive teachers, good friends, a strong sense of self. I'd wanted to be a writer since I was old enough to hear a story. And still, one comment was enough to start undoing all of that. It didn't undo it completely, obviously, or I wouldn't be here telling the story. I wouldn't have spent more than half my life making a living by telling stories. I wouldn't have launched Kickstarters and published novels and won poetry awards that weren't about ICs. Of course, that wasn't the only time someone made me feel shame for what I loved. It was just the first time of many. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't have to spell them all out. The details don't matter. They stack up like layers of sedimentary rock until they're so tall and thick and wide that you don't remember how to get over them or even what it looks like on the other side. This world will tell you over and over that you should be ashamed of what you love, especially if you are a woman. Even more so if you are a woman of color, a disabled woman, a fat woman, a bi woman, a queer woman. And if you can dare to shake off the shame that's supposed to surround your passion, then you definitely should not ask for money for it. You should do it for the sheer love of creation, for the good of the world. Because, of course, if you try to make a living from your passions, you're somehow selling out. But here's the truth as I know it. Believing in your passion despite everything is hard and vital. But taking it to the next level, selling your passion, daring to make a living from it, stating its value loud for all to hear, that is a radical act of self-love. A radical act of defiance. It's a pushback against the shame and barriers that are layered over us moment after moment, Comment after comment. It's powerful and scary and necessary. And this is what I love about things like Kickstarter and Patreon and all of the other ways we have now of putting our passions out there. They give us platforms from which to raise our voices and our heads and say to the world, here is a thing I am passionate about. It is valuable and worthy. I love it and I think you will love it too. 
And somewhere out there, a young girl who has just now found her passion and is just about to walk into that first comet, which will smother that passion like so much falling rock, that girl will hear our voices and she will know it as her truth. Thank you, Total Party Chill, for sponsoring that audio story by Shauna. And thank you, Shauna, for paying it forward and donating that sponsorship to Brown Art Inc., a community incubator to support the arts ecosystem for artists, cultural practitioners, and communities of color. Thank you also to Banana, Annie, and Sasha for sharing your stories and wisdoms with Behold Her. Remember, if you love hearing these stories from fem gamers, you can help make Behold Her happen by supporting patreon.com slash beholdher. Hope to see you there. Bye.